0: Hello and welcome to I Think You're Interesting. Sometimes a person identifies a problem that not everybody knew was a problem. And by everybody, I mean those of us in the media. And by those of us in the media, I mean white people in the media. And by white people in the media, I mean me. I'm Todd Vanderwerf, the I in I Think You're Interesting. Hari Kondabolu identified a problem his self-hosted, self-produced 2017 documentary The Problem with Apu discusses how The Simpsons character Apu Padalon created a caricature of South Asians and perpetuated a stereotype that hung over South Asian kids like Hari.
1: I hate Apu. Hate Apu. Hate Apu. And because of that I dislike The Simpsons. Wow, the whole series. The whole series? Yeah. I love The Simpsons. I just don't love that character. I have never been able to divorce the two. How many of you were bullied in any capacity, as a child. We raising hands. Yeah, raising hands. We'll do the hands thing. All right. Yeah. Okay. Now, how many uh, had to deal with, like, being called a poo or that being referenced?
0: It's very telling that in a room of South Asian actors in that clip, pretty much everybody raised their hand. Now, this documentary isn't a call for a poo to be removed from the show or fired into the sun or anything like that. Though plenty of people, most of whom haven't seen the movie, think it is. No, it's just an earnest discussion of how these types of stereotypes can still hurt people. But the problem with Abu has also come to define Hari's work in a way that I think is both deserved, it's a really good little documentary, and maybe a little unfair. See, Hari is a tremendously funny stand-up comedian, someone who tells jokes about racism and the divisiveness of American politics, and someone who can make you laugh at the way many of us have erected and carried on those divides. In his new Netflix special, Warn Your Relatives, Hari jokes about race, homophobia, the Trump administration, and the time he got heckled by fellow comedian Tracy Morgan. And though he first built his reputation as a comedian who makes jokes about political and social issues, he's increasingly delving into more personal areas, especially when it comes to his own parents and childhood. So Hari joined me to talk about comedy, about politics, and yes, about Apu. You won't want to miss it, so stick around. My guest is Hari Kondabolu, whose new stand-up special "Warn Your Relatives" is on Netflix. Hari, thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me. I I knew you from Totally Biased, mm. uh, which was a show I really liked. It's a talk show on FX and then FXX. Yes, that's right. And uh, it was hosted by W. Kamau Bell. It was a really fun show that lasted too short of a time.
1: We uh, were about three or four years ahead of yeah, our time. Yeah. <laughs> looking at it now, looking at the climate now, yeah.
0: And then you, uh, you know, you had the the problem with the poo. So, like, to me, you've been more and more in the public eye, and like as a comic that has to be a little intimidating because like you have to be able to get that connection with the audience. But as the audience gets larger and as the houses get larger, that has to be tougher. How have you managed that sort of transition?
1: I mean, the houses at this point aren't so intimidating where I'm too worried. I mean, if I'm hitting like 800 or 1000, that feels okay. Mm -hmm. You know, like it's, it's, it's not the same as 200 or 250, but like, You get the sense, and it feels good. When it gets bigger than that, you start to— Like, I opened for Chris Rock in Europe last year. We were playing to, what, 7,000, 8,000. At that point, you start to realize it's a different game. Uh, Your voice will echo in the hockey arena, because we're in a hockey arena. uh, You will have to pay attention to a lot of other things going on. You know, it's not just simply the audience, because there's so many of them. There's no way you can have all of them pay attention, and how do you keep them focused? You have to be bigger. There's all these other tools that come into play— I mean, the thing I realized after that is I don't think I really want to play at rooms that big. <laughs> like, I don't I think it takes away from some of the the fun of it, uh, at least for me, because uh, you lose subtlety. You have to just because it's too big. It sets itself up for a, a performer like Chris Rock. And it's not to say he doesn't have subtlety, but he's so big. Yeah, He's so big. He fills the room with this personality. I feel like I'm a little more dry. And I don't think that works in a space that big. So, so far, it's been great. You know, it's it's a really lovely feeling when you have, you know, 800 people in front of you. Because the weird thing is... You know, if you make 200 people laugh, it feels good. 200 out of 800 is, uh, is a quarter, but it's still laughter. Yeah, That's still enough laughter to keep your confidence up. And that's a part of this, right? As long as the laughs string together, it buys you time to improvise. It makes it allows you to think. It makes you feel like you're in a room full of friends you haven't met yet. Like, it's, it's such a good feeling. And I understand and I see how, you know, I think comics who regularly get to play that, their games step up. Because they have this confidence that like I'm going to do well because I always do well, and when you're starting out, that there is less of a guarantee of that. You can still bomb it from a big room, which by the way, there was definitely been jokes I've done in front of 800 people. I'm like, well, 800 of you agree, I should never try that again. <laughs> but yeah, it's it's been good so far. I mean, the other aspects are a little creepy in terms of people recognizing me. It's not like uh, a really famous person kind of issue. Like I don't, it's not like paparazzi or anything, but. Yeah, it's kind of weird. Like someone live tweeted a conversation I was having with a friend once. And I had this weird thing where people were taking pictures of me asleep on the subway. So <laughs> it's not like good health insurance fame. Yeah. It's like a weird creepy fame yeah it's still it's still not the place where oh i can justify this creepiness with all these other things it's just kind of there
0: do they tag you when they're talking about they
1: have (laughs) i don't know why they think it's a good idea yeah (laughs) but they they have people are weird man and you know for some people i'm famous and to most humans i'm not (laughs) like so i mean it's a weird kind of thing because we live in a time where there's so the media is so diversified who is famous and known to you is the nobody to someone else
0: it's yeah. more like that than ever before and that's that's another kind of interesting thing about like your level of fame for comedians is a lot of folks who are at that are able to talk about really individualized really like personal narratives and experiences that you know maybe 30 years ago when you needed to get on the tonight show mm-hmm. wasn't as possible that's have you absolutely found that to right. be true that's
1: absolutely right yeah i may mean, see that in the last decade i couldn't have done some of the things i did then not only because the skill level wasn't there but also the audience would not have allowed me there weren't enough people that wanted to hear that i mean Not in terms of people that discovered me and were excited to see me, but like a regular club crowd. You know, what I do often is I don't believe in the idea of the audience doesn't know what you're talking about. You can't do the joke. You explain it to them so they can figure it out. You give them enough context. You tell them the story. It makes my setups a little longer. And I try to fill those setups with jokes as well. But that's that's just stylistically. That's what I've done. I couldn't have approached it that way when I started in like 2005, 2006. I, I wouldn't have had the the ability to, to reach people like that. So I think that, one, the audience has gotten much more educated as a result of the Internet, as a result of a generation of change media, a generation that's grown up with South Asians. I, I, I'm on stage and the first thought that enters people's minds – I don't think it was what it was 10 years ago. 10 years ago, it was like, why does that voice come out of that face? Mm. Like that was the elephant in the room. I get, you know, that's the elephant in the room. You have to address the elephant in the room. It's not an elephant in the room anymore. Not to the same degree. And that makes life so much easier. You're allowed to be complex when we don't have to deal with why do you exist this way?
0: Yeah.
1: So I think that's led to, you know, I think it's such a better work.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I like it when artists talk about why they're doing what they're doing and, Mm. like, are showing you the construction (laughs) of what they're putting together. And you do that a lot, but there's a bit, especially in Warn Your Relatives, and I won't spoil it for people who want to watch it, but you explicitly, like, lay out how the punchline's going to work and you do, like, four or five different Mm -hmm. versions of it. And then, you know, some of them aren't as good and then you, like, land on one that's very different. And I'm wondering, like... What do you think is funny about telling people what you're going to do? Like what is what is funny about exposing the magic trick? <laughs> Let the, I want
1: them in on the joke. Mm-hmm. I want them to know that I am aware this is a show. I'm aware that we're in a room and you are facing me and that I'm doing a thing. My favorite comic, or, or at least the comic over the last, I would say, 10 years has influenced me the most, is a British comic named Stuart Lee. Okay. And Stuart Lee believes very much in using structure and the idea that in stand up you can do anything it's the freest art form why why are there any restrictions of of structure everything can be funny anything you're using any of the tools they're up for for use and so i think watching him do stand up really affected how i see jokes like a failed joke is not a failed joke it's it's a joke whose punchline didn't work initially that's not a failed joke i mean that was like mind boggling like So you can fail a joke, but that's a setup. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that's kind of where that joke came from. It's like, well, then I'll keep failing jokes and make the last joke really immature and and gross. I mean, I don't want to ruin the bit, but, you know, in the bit I even lay out that it's – by the end of it that, you know, it was a fake improvisation. Like I love the idea of like, you know, the assumption of improvisation after a ton of clearly choreographed bits Mm – Uh, I like the fact that I'm calling out the fact that it was choreographed for a greater purpose, trying to justify something I'd done on stage that was crude, as if there was some deeper meaning to it. And then there's a callback
0: at the end. One of the things I really like about it is it balances— I think it uses politics in a way that like we do in real life. It balances like here's a way – a political issue but here's how like my personal thoughts on it. Here's how like the way I was brought up influences how I think about it. How did you sort of come to that approach? You know, it's interesting. I think for years
1: I I didn't do that Uh, or I did less of that I should say. I felt like you know, the political was always personal but when I talked about it, I took my personal experiences out of it. Just because that's when you're more vulnerable. I mean, it's funny because some comics are the opposite. They're better when they're—or they're more comfortable when they share stories about their lives. But when they start to get into, like, clear stances on issues, they get uncomfortable. That seems like too much. It's vulnerable there, which I—it was always the other way for me. So my—often my points of view, like, people inferred who I was from that and what I must have been through versus let me just tell you. And, and build that rapport and so when I talk with the other stuff um, there's a better sense of who I am it's easier to talk to a friend about difficult things and make them laugh than it is to talk to someone who doesn't know you at all and you're expecting them to just figure it out yeah. so I mean certainly that was intentional for this special I pushed myself towards that and and I think W Kamau Bell is a big part of the reason why like in addition to being one of my best friends he also is is a is somebody I look up to. You know, he's definitely a hero. Like I watch Kamau perform and I see how he talks about his family, his, his life, and and how all these different things intersect with it. And so the audience sees the lived experience. It's not an abstract idea. It's, it's you know, clearly affecting our hero. And that's kind of what I... I've seen him do for years in kind of in awe, like, whoa, like that's you can do that. And and he makes himself vulnerable. And so seeing that over the years, I'm like, I need to push more towards that. And so I think that's the reason why I've pushed in that direction.
0: Learning to be vulnerable can be really tough though. oh God <laughs> and what how did you how did you approach that question of like how am I gonna how am I gonna open myself up when that's not my first impulse?
1: You know I feel I got a little lucky too some of it's putting yourself out there, but I think there's I can actually say there's three distinct things that got me to that position and and make me excited about what I'm about to write for the next hour but one, I do these n- nights in Seattle there are new material nights or scratch nights I do them in a forty seat theater and I just start fresh, start from scratch, an hour, more or less of new stuff, bullet points and see what happens. So the first show, of the run of four shows will be brutal. And the audience knows this. I've been doing this for years. Like the first show is going to be the hardest to watch because he has no idea. But it's also the most exciting because if I if I pull a joke out of nothing, they know that like, whoa, he just came up with that whole string of things. I forced myself to be vulnerable in those situations. And I tell the audience, hey, look, this stuff's not finished. Please don't share it. There's a lot of personal things that might come out. It almost feels therapeutic. I don't know where it's going. It might go nowhere. It might go somewhere. So I start there in a place I feel safe. Another thing I feel like, obviously, is therapy, just years of therapy. You start to learn you're opening yourself up to another person. I'm finding out all these things about myself that maybe I didn't want to think about. But once you get comfortable with certain ideas and they no longer feel like revelations to you and you're more comfortable in your skin, I can share them. I never thought I would be able to, but there are definitely things I feel like more and more I'm able to put out there as a result. And the third thing, which I wonder if has had the most impact, is the podcast I do with my brother Ashok. We have a podcast called the Kundibolu Brothers Podcast. Before that, we had a you know, a one called the Untitled Kundabolo Brothers podcast, and we've also had a a show, a live show called the Untitled Kundabolo Brothers project that we've done for almost ten years. We structure the show with a PowerPoint. We try to use that as a way to segue into conversations, and it's it's really about two brothers and their relationship, and um, we're very honest in what we talk about with each other, and that is really him, you know, because I think I'm very much a person that's structured in their in their standup or in their performance is deliberate thinks through everything, and like I've said, like haven't historically shared much, my brother doesn't care. My brother talks. My brother will say what he wants to say. He sees himself as an open book. He also doesn't necessarily go with whatever script I've had in my head for how the show is supposed to go. So it forces me to improvise. It forces me to respond. And if one person is going to be so open, it forces me to be open. So I think I'm quicker on stage because of him, and I think I'm more honest on stage because of him. You know, it's a little different because I end up having to repeat the same things over and over. And for him, it's like once and then I'm not going to repeat that ever again. My brother doesn't like the, the showmanship aspect of it. But certainly I think seeing someone so close to you make themselves vulnerable around you and seeing how, you know, I have to force myself to respond to that. Like just responding to him being personal makes it personal. So I would say... You know, those are the things that probably
0: have changed me over the last three to four years. There's a section in the middle of Warn Your Relatives where you start to talk about Trump Mm. and then uh, as somebody who does a lot of political humor, Mm. that's sort of where we're expecting you to go. You do a little bit about Trump, but then you very quickly get away from it and you sort of say it as he does so much of the work that it's almost impossible (laughs) to make jokes about him.
1: All right, I'm not going to talk uh, about Trump anymore. I feel like we're all trumped out. We have to deal with it every single day. After he got elected, people were like, oh, as a comedian, this must be great that Trump got elected. Must be No, it's not. Uh, If you read his tweets, if you hear what he says, he does all the work already. (laughs) There's nothing you can add to that. Like CNN is basically Comedy Central at this point. As
0: somebody who likes to talk about political topics, how how difficult is that, you know? I mean, uh, it's tricky because
1: you can't ignore him. But things change so quickly. It's a scandal a day. When I was like doing that special, I'm like, is he even going to be president? (laughs) I felt that way up to last week. Like I wasn't sure. Like is he still going to be president by the time this comes out? How outdated does it feel if I mention him? But at the same time, there has been this very clear shift. Everything is different. Like it it marks the biggest shift in, in quite some time where the world just feels different because of him, him being the leader. So you can't ignore it. So I wanted to find ways to acknowledge it without getting too specific and talk about the things we know. He's a liar. That's pretty big and universal. You know, wh- uh, why did people elect him? I mean, that's historic at this point. You know, his him talking about grabbing women, you know, it's a specific details from his campaign. But it's so, uh, like, egregious. And the idea you can get elected by even when saying things to, to half the electorate. Um, those are all things that felt bigger than— just the moment. Um, so I, I could justify putting that in, but I it's hard. It's hard. What else can you say? Like there's no satire when he's doing the thing. Like this is the most ridiculous television show that we're watching. It doesn't make sense. It's a comedy. You know, usually when you see this stuff, it's not a comedy, it's a drama, it's a West Wing. It's a comedy. It's absurd. How many different press secretaries the public affairs and payoffs, you know, negotiations w- with people behind closed doors. None of it's impeachable, which, oh, man, like just the idea of that's how broken our system is. Look at all this stuff he's doing. Apparently still above board. Mm. <laughs> As of now, still above board somehow. Mm. Um, it's it's really hard unless you come up with a Trump thing that is much bigger and almost um, – the macro, you know, the bigger stuff—not the day to day—it's really, really hard.
0: There was this thing, kind of in the in the two thousands, kind of at the height of the Daily Show when John with the Daily Show with John Stewart, I should say, yeah, um, that you know, good political humor might bridge the gap between liberal and conservative, and I think we've realized that it doesn't quite work that way. No, but uh, what are your feelings on like humor as a political tool for persuasion or? Something like that.
1: I mean, when I create art, I don't think about that. Mm -hmm. You can't think about that. I mean, then you're going to make something that might be righteous politically but not funny and therefore ineffective. You know, I think art is as political and persuasive as it is effective. If it's not good art, it's not effective for any purpose. So if I have that in my head, I'm not going to create the best work. Just focus on the jokes. What is the story I want to tell? What is my perspective? And it has to be honest. If you're doing something just because this is a good talking point, audience smells f- phoniness. I, I really do believe they'll figure out a phony unless they're really looking the other way, which honestly could be possible. cause <laughs> all things considered. But I feel that you have to be funny. So I don't think about it as persuasive. That being said, certainly, certainly it has impact, you know, because not so much for people who have their points of view. I think that's a harder shift. But for the people kind of in the middle, and children, which is a weird thing to say. Like, if you're an undecided voter, apolitical, or a child, (laughs) (laughs) then that's when it has impact, you know, especially with young people. Like, you know, I learned so much about the world from stand-up comedy because even though I grew up in Queens, New York, and it was a multicultural, multiracial, global place, and I was, like, a fairly educated, well-educated, like, I was sheltered in it. Mm -hmm. But when you see stand-ups, you get a sense of, like, these are people that have lived. These are people who have traveled. And there's no production value. It's somebody telling you straight straight up, this is what it's like. That was exciting to me. It's still exciting to me and direct and accessible, and I understood it. And I feel like that there's a generation of young people who are following stand-up, and I think it's the same thing for them. It's the same thing. And, you know, maybe there's value in a clip exposing an idea going viral. And and people spreading it around. But, you know, I really do think there's an echo chamber sometimes. And we think things are having influence when it's just being repeated in our circles over and over and over again. Yeah. So I don't know. I don't You know, I'd like you know, I know that my documentary, my stand up is being used in college, high school, college and grad school classes, which is certainly not the goal. But I'm happy that that's the truth. And that certainly has some impact. Yeah. But I don't think every comic should be thinking that. Like, I got to get this in curriculums. No, just make the people laugh and yeah. then see what happens. This is how you know when things made an impact, when you start getting hate mail and death threats. Yeah. That's when you know, wait a second, this went viral. Mm. This isn't an echo chamber because people hate it. <laughs> you know, That's how I knew my, my documentary, The Problem with Apu, did well, is when I was starting to get that. When I checked iTunes and it was – I forgot what their system is. If it's one to – Five, I I got a three cumulative. But when I looked, it was all ones and fives. Yeah, that means it was good. Yeah, <laughs> that's exactly what you want it to be. I want to be in the middle because I hit both ends. Yeah, it's not a good feeling to get hate mail every single day. But you know that it resonated with people. Uh, most people didn't, I don't think, watched it. But just the the questioning of the status quo created something. It, it hit a nerve.
0: I will say, I, when I saw that documentary, I went to it. I went into it skeptical, and I came out. Convinced. I came out convinced that we should at least be talking about right. this subject. Like right. maybe Maybe nothing changes because that's how television works, sure. but at least we're having that conversation. And a lot of people did seem really threatened by that. What it's was so your takeaway from that?
1: Because, well, I'm talking to a cartoon character from a long time ago, and I'm talking about something that happened, like, for a, a good part of my youth. You know, at this point, we're a bunch of adults. I feel like the story isn't, what do we do with this Apu character? I mean, the point of the whole story was really to do what Whoopi Goldberg did. Mm -hmm. Whoopi Goldberg, you know, she's not talking about go and destroy all the blackface thing, artifacts in the past. She's saying, let's talk about it and put it up out front, right? Like, let's recontextualize these things and put it in front of you and let's talk about them. This was my, you know— minstrel uh, Black Americana collection. She calls it her Negrobilia. Like, this is what it was for me. If they get rid of Apu, if they change his voice, I don't care. Like, at the end of the day, that affects me zero percent. No, that's not true, because people will message me for, "You you killed Apu! You killed this fictional cartoon character of a show we haven't obsessively watched in 15 years! You know what I mean? So, like, it does nothing for me. Really, it was more for... Let's look at something that is is so deep in America's DNA like The Simpsons is big man in terms of media of the last what 50 years yeah. like it's lasted 30 of them and it has such a big impact it's such a shift it's so important and it's still current and even there there's something that there's a little bit of the the poison of racism yeah. I'm not the whole character the whole, the character isn't the worst character in the world the character comes from this faulty base that gets exacerbated when there's nothing else.
0: Yeah,
1: but that's nuanced. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> that's not easy to say in you know a, a few words. And but that's what it is. Like you know, my honest opinion with the character is that keep him. Who cares? Keep him and just you know maybe complicate his stuff a little bit. Let his kids talk. I thought about it. Like I thought it'd be funny if like his kids came home one day from school upset. Because everybody makes fun of their father. I'm like, yeah, that's kind of uh, my experience. Everyone's making fun of uh, my father through the cartoon. Like, that could be a fun episode. Like, who knows? There's a bunch of possibilities. But at the end of the day, I don't care. I mean, that's why The Simpsons' reaction surprised me. They reacted really negatively. It's like, don't react at all. What are you doing? Yeah. Like, we're I'm on basic cable. I made a documentary. You're The Simpsons. How fragile are you Were you're upset about this? So and why I like Hank Azaria's heartfelt reaction, which wasn't an apology, it was an acknowledgement. Apologies don't mean anything. An acknowledgement though, like they have real experiences and they should be heard because this is a community that that exists and they have an American experience and it's different. That's perfect. That's all everybody wanted is just to to exist and acknowledge that you know those years were not spent in a void, but are a lived experience. And drawing from that, that's true with all communities. Mm -hmm. And whenever we have other people play the parts or share the stories of other people inaccurately, that's what we're doing is we're doing them a disservice. Because for South Asian American men, we're doing okay right now. If you're straight, cis, South Asian American man, like we have a whole bunch of representations, a lot more than ever. If you're a woman, you got a couple. And if you're gay, you don't exist really, minimally maybe – Molly Pancioli's character on 30 Rock, you know, and if you're trans, there's nothing. So it's like, I want all human beings to be able to share their stories and their communities to be represented a lot more fairly, not just from the purpose of social justice, this is right. That makes for, it's because it makes for better stories, you know, like this film, it's such an old idea, but that's because they didn't let me make it before, you know, I wouldn't have been allowed to. So our old stories are the new stories for people. Mm. You know, Mm -hmm. Fresh Off the Boat is not a new story. It's an old story. It's not Eddie Wong's story anymore. It's the 90s Asian-American sitcom they should have made after Margaret Cho show ended, but they didn't bother for another 20, 30 years, right? It's The the old stuff is now new. So let's cover that stuff. Let's get it out there and then talk about complex identities. Because at the end of the day, when you think of Apu, for example— it's the same corny jokes. You have to really draw his character out and develop him for to, to get the better jokes. Yeah. But just the jokes on ethnicity, there's ver- the same versions of the same joke over and over again because he's it's it's built in this faulty kind of like stereotype. If you if you gave him more levels and we all knew about the different levels, there's a ton more jokes there. That's yeah. just true with with any kind of topic. The more layers you you, you unpack, the more jokes you have.
0: Every so often somebody writes an article about how, as an example, Friends yeah. like had a bunch of gay panic jokes and how they don't play as well now. But like I was, I was cognizant enough of reaction to Friends at the time to remember that there were people who were saying, why are we telling these jokes? They're not particularly funny. Back then, there's like sort of this attitude that we discovered – we started talking about diversity in 2014, which is really not true. But like right. that, you get that from a lot of people. And I'm, I am I, I, like your documentary is like a, a big example of like we've been talking about this for a while. Maybe everybody else needs to get caught up, you know.
1: It means to me that, one, people heard me. And in the past, when you ma- people made the noise, they weren't heard. So that's positive. And I think the second thing is the Internet. It tells you that the internet really changed things. Like when people made noise before, it didn't matter. But now it's like it sticks, you know, like for better or worse, whenever I hear, uh, you know, Jake Tapper say, let's go to your tweets. I feel mixed about it. On one hand, I'm like, okay, so the people have a voice. And the other hand, I'm like, you just spoke to a bunch of experts, and now you're like, so what does this idiot on the internet have to say? Like, why do I want to hear what he has to say? I was like, I could read Twitter. Why am I reading this on the news? So it's a double-edged sword, but the part that is positive is we can actually shape things. And by shape things, I don't mean go to your favorite TV shows and write the scripts for them to shape them to to, to what we want. It means shape a culture so there's a generation of people coming up who actually think differently about what they're writing and actually make things that are far more interesting. Mm -hmm. Because at the end of the day, whenever people talk about political correctness, like I use this example a fair bit, which is always mixed depending on your generation, but All in the Family. When people say you can't make shows like All in the Family anymore – What do they mean when they say that? Right. Because I love All in the Family. It's one of my top five shows of all time. I think it's one of the most hard-hitting and brilliant. Do they just want somebody like Archie or do they want that show? Yeah.
0: Yeah. Because
1: that show is perfect. But if they're saying they don't make characters like Archie Bunker anymore, that was the point of the show. It shouldn't be like that. He shouldn't exist anymore. Yeah. He's there to be the antihero of course he's not supposed to exist now. That, that That's the whole show. Like his son-in-law and his daughter were the future. They're the progress. You know, that to me is, is part of the big issue when we talk political correctness. What do you mean? Because that show is not politically correct for whatever that means. But like, look at how they were able to cover things, right? One of the more interesting things about that show is they had a I think it was like a three – episode. I don't think it was an arc exactly, but they had a few episodes with a character named Beverly LaSalle. Yeah. Do you remember Beverly LaSalle, that character? Um, she was a drag queen whose life Archie saved and when he finds out it was actually a drag queen, Archie, of course, got all weird. He went from hero to I don't know how to, f- how to feel about this. Edith befriends her, and there's three episodes where they you see their relationship, and by the third one, Beverly LaSalle is playing Carnegie Hall or something like that, and Edith and her have been writing letters back and forth for years, and they've become really close. And, you know, it's shocking because Edith is like could be like anyone's mom, mm-hmm. and it's a drag queen, and it's being normalized, mm-hmm. right, in this really interesting way, but Archie's still there to say, it's not normal to me. And she's excited to see your friend, Beverly LaSalle, gets killed in a hate crime. And Edith stops believing in God. Are you in a comedy? In a comedy? <laughs> yeah. So when people are saying you can't make what you're used to anymore, how many people are thinking that? Because yeah. to me, I'm like, that is the ability to take these incredible comedic characters and have comedy, but still really dig that deep yeah. into human beings. Because comedy is nothing if it doesn't have tragedy to be you know, opposed to it. Like, it's it's that give and take that makes that show so wonderful. And no one's thinking that. I really doubt that's what they're thinking. They just want to hear Archie say the thing that is horrific. Yeah. That's yeah. what they want. And it, it frustrates me to no end. The conversations we're having are these ridiculous conversations about we can't do what we can we, we used to do. Why can't we? And it's like the point of that art. Like if you're talking about the really old stuff, well, that stuff is blatantly racist. And if you're talking about the stuff that actually had a point to it, well, the creators wouldn't have wanted that. You really – I really hope Norman Lear isn't like, I wish we could make this stuff now. I, like, I would like to believe he's in the camp of like – We should be making shows like this now that tackle today's issues.
0: It's interesting you bring up Norman Lear because his Netflix show, uh, The One Day at a Time remake, is so good. I haven't seen it It's so good and it is like – it's about intergenerational conflict. It's about talking about the issues from the perspective of a grandmother and a mother and the children. And like they all have different perspectives and they argue about them but it's about – a Latina family. And Mm. like, so when I point that out to people who are like, why haven't we had shows like All in the Family? Like that's, you know, often they just want somebody who's loud and angry and bigoted. Right. That's unsettling.
1: And there's a version of that that makes sense to me.
0: Like a version
1: where like, you know, I have friends who I think are incredibly progressive and a little bit older and the trans stuff throws them for a loop. And it's not that they're mean about it. It's just like, it, it just, it's another level of, well, but gender? I thought that was the one we were agreed to, you know what I mean? And everything hasn't been settled, clearly. Mm -hmm. When you're in the middle of a quote-unquote culture war, when you're in the middle of—I don't don't want to say that—in the middle of such great change. It's not a culture war. I I just don't think people know how to deal with progress that's happening all at once instead of gradually. Mm -hmm. That means there's going to be tons of interesting conflict to write about as opposed to just knocking things down. That's not, you know, that's not that interesting. As much as I like bowling, it's like throw ball at pins, knock them down. Like that's not art.
0: Vox has a show on Netflix. We've been singing its praises for a few weeks now. It's called Explained, and every episode is a 15-minute deep dive into one important topic. This week, that topic is the stock market. I got an early preview. I think you're going to love it. So it explores questions like, how does the stock market work, and what does it actually measure? It explains why, even though the average family's net worth still hasn't recovered from the Great Recession, the stock market is booming. And it features a lemonade stand. Really, it's amazing. So go find it on Netflix when you get home tonight. You can search for Vox or you can go straight to netflix.com slash explained. That's netflix.com slash explained. Hello, listeners of I Think You're Interesting. This is Peter Kafka. I am the host of Recode Media. I want to tell you about an interview I just did at the Code Conference with Randall Stevenson. He's the CEO of AT&T. He's the guy who had like to buy a time order. He's the guy who's being sued by the Trump administration. We talked about all of that. We talked about why a giant telco wants to own a giant content company. Um, it's a pretty frank conversation. Usually you don't get frank conversations with guys who run giant telcos. Um, we got pretty close to it. We also talked about why he thinks black lives matter, which is an unusual thing to hear a giant telco CEO talk about. Um, it's a good conversation. You can listen to it for free over at Recode Media with Peter Kafka. Thanks. This is something I've been thinking about a lot lately, which is, since trump was elected there's kind of this there was briefly a feeling that like art didn't matter anymore and all we had to do was protest and all this and that very quickly went away but i've kind of been wondering like if politics is in essence downstream from culture or if culture is downstream from politics like obviously you can legislate things like you could you could try to legislate like a handmaid's tale style scenario but like at a certain point if the culture is not where the politics is. I kind of feel like the politics changes to match the culture, and I'm not. I'm not sure if that's true, but like I've been wondering about that.
1: Because it's well, because it's also generational. Mm-hmm. So you know, the idea of legalizing weed, yeah, completely I- impossible. Mm-hmm. And now all of a sudden, you get you know some white folks making money off legalized <laughs> weed, and John John Boehner loves weed now. <laughs> He's all about legalizing it. Yeah. So I think there's that factor. It's culture, and and, and honestly, and this is cynical culture. And how it affects people's wallets. Like people – there isn't an increase of programs of different people of color and different perspectives now because it's right. Mm -hmm. It's because no one wants the biggest piece of the pie because you can't get the biggest piece of the pie. They want a piece of the pie. Mm -hmm. So when you want a piece of the pie, you could look for smaller niches of audiences. So if you have a character – uh, you know, that reaches a particular audience, you know, that means diversity has to happen so you can corner that particular market. Right. That's what, it's, it's completely different. So the culture changed when people also started to realize that there was money to be made by expanding it. Mm-hmm. People don't think things are cutting edge and new because we got we to put it out there because it's cutting edge. They put it out there because, like, the cutting edge and new might make money.
0: And if it doesn't, let's go back to Roseanne. There's a lot of really great jokes in Warn Your Relatives about, talking about these sorts of things with specifically white people. Hmm. And some of them as as a stereotype of a white liberal myself who, you know, <laughs> tweets furiously about yeah, things yeah, sometimes, yeah. but doesn't get too involved like like you mentioned, uh, when there's a confrontation in a coffee shop or something. I right. just kind of keep my head down and keep staring at my computer. Right. How do you uh how do you help white people like myself, like sort of realize those hypocrisies within themselves without making it you know, because nobody likes to look at the hypocrisy within no, themselves. No. You know, how, how, do you, how do you bridge that gap? I mean, I
1: do that all the time, which is why I think that's part of the misery and joy of being a comic is that you're so analytical that you, you can't let things go, right? But I mean, when I make the jokes, again, I don't think about how am I going to open people's minds up about a thing or how do I show them the hypocrisy. I show them the hypocrisy because I can get a joke out of it and I see it and it's obvious to me. I mean I think I needed to make sure the white liberal audience that might be watching, that particular component of the audience is in on it. They feel in on it. They're connected. Okay, We talked about race, but then we got to women's rights. We got to gay rights. We talked about my mom. Okay, we're not on race right now. I'm in it. I'm in it. And then when you hit them with the hard stuff, when I'm making John Brown references and when I'm going into what you need to sacrifice – you know, then all of a sudden it's like, wow, we've been through this journey with him for 50 minutes. So they're willing to think about it. I want them to think about how many times have you been in that coffee shop? How many times have you been in a setting where you knew what you were seeing was wrong and you didn't want to deal with it because it's the subway and you worry? How many times should you have lifted up your phone and at least recorded it? Mm-hmm. You know, like that woman did in, in Oakland when that that uh, woman was harassing you know, those black folks having a, a barbecue regarding charcoal and, you know, a white woman followed her and taped her and and kind of said this is what people have to deal with. I mean, I didn't know that was a, a white woman. For the longest time, I thought that was a woman of color because I couldn't imagine. I kept thinking, oh, my God, why is this woman doing? Doesn't she know that she's a woman of color and this is going to end badly with the police? And then how come the police didn't do anything? And then I'm like, oh, it was a white woman. OK. Yeah. Yeah. Then so, so she wasn't going to get hurt. Like she was smart about it. Hmm. but those are the moments where i'm like we need you like racism isn't about what we get out of it what do people color get out of it it's about creating a world that is actually fair and more decent and without the tensions that you feel and without the awkwardness and i think on some level i think there's a lot of people that have that guilt of i'm getting something i didn't earn mm-hmm. i mean i think people want to earn the things they get often i mean i certainly feel like i've i've Benefited from all sorts of privilege, you know, whether it's caste privilege that allowed my family to be in a position to even come to America, whether it's the privilege of having two parents and having the ability to, you know, move from lower middle to middle to upper middle. I mean, that's not everyone has that opportunity and and has been given an an opportunity to get an education. And so, how else am I supposed to do something about it if I don't even acknowledge those things and work towards it? Yeah. So, You know, again, I I think with comedy because you there is a promise of a gift at the end, a joke. That promise is a really big promise. That's why when you fail, people are really angry. Yeah, (laughs) because you made me sit through stuff I didn't want to sit through, and you didn't even deliver on a punchline. (laughs) But if you deliver, it's all forgiven. Yeah, you know, and then people can think later about it. Like we can't say that art doesn't matter. There is a reason why in oppressive regimes they try to censor art. You know, like Bassem Youssef, what he dealt with in Egypt, you know, with his version of The Daily Show. Like people want to censor art. They want to censor free speech and they want to censor it. Like I don't mean a comedian criticizing a cartoon so you think we have to shut it down. I mean actually the government shutting it down because they're worried about – you know, critical thinking, mm. the word of what happens when there's critical thinking, they're worried about the impact of that. So let's not pretend that art doesn't have impact. Mm. Art absolutely has impact. Why would everyone else be afraid of it then?
0: You mentioned earlier that you learned so much about the world from listening to stand up comics who had traveled the world. Now that you yourself are a stand up comic who occasionally travels the world, yeah. what, what have you learned about the world from that experience?
1: Well, one that as an American, I'm privileged where I can do stand up comedy anywhere. <laughs> It's a very, like, American art form. It's a very—it's just a human on stage with words in, in a language that is not the native language of many countries, yet I can still play there. Like, it's absurd. I mean, I think about just being an American. I mean, I know so many Canadian comics who can't get visas to do stand-up down here, but we can go up there whenever we want. Yeah. Like, it's a—you know, you see the the privilege in being a stand-up who is an American, There's a ton of great performers with different traditions and different languages all over the world. Because humor, you know, even if it's not exactly universal, the idea of humor is. Mm. The catharsis of humor, the joy you get, whatever feeling you get from making people laugh, that's universal. You know, but we don't get to learn those lessons. We don't get to to have that laugh because our laugh via English is the one people want Mm. globally. Mm. So I've definitely learned— how much we have in common, but I also am aware of how much we have in common culturally somewhat is dictated by American hegemony, right? Yeah. Our stuff dominates everywhere. So, you know, the reference I'm making, mm. you're making a reference to a show in Belgium. No idea what you're talking about. <laughs> but, hey, I'm talking about friends. You get what I'm talking about. Like, that's so unfair. Yeah. I'm benefiting from it and I appreciate it. But nonetheless, it's like doing the job anywhere else. I don't it wouldn't work.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Well, we're kind of headed into the end of the show, but we started out by talking about kind of how you bridge the political and personal, especially in this special. You talk about your mother a lot. Yes. And I'm wondering how she feels about being a subject of your, your stand-up, because she, you obviously admire her, you obviously love her, but also yeah. there are things about her you find funny.
1: Sure, sure. I mean, part of it is that I, I treat her, um, she's a subject, but she has some degree of autonomy in a weird way, because I'm just reading the things she said for part of the show. Here are funny things she said to insult me. And they're not cute mom insults. They're clever and sharp and worded right. You know, a lot of us take our parents for granted, and I've certainly done that with mine. And recently I decided to write down things that my mother has said to me recently. So here, uh, here are three of my favorite mom jokes. These are actual <laughs> things my mother has said. Right. So I go up to my mom, and I said... Hey, Mom, sorry I didn't call earlier this week. And she says, It's okay. It was a relief. She's clever. I want people to know this is a free-thinking person. This isn't a caricature. This is a free-thinking, quick person. This is a woman that is an Indian immigrant, but she also supports gay rights. How many times have you ever thought those two things could be together? Coming from a conservative culture, generally speaking, and to have this openness and love, you know, how does she explain her support like all these things add um so many layers and of course there's expectations of, the, of her son that at times she's had to deal with disappointment like he's a comic the other one was a hype man in a rap group like it's uh not you know what she planned when she left everything behind but i think you know i never treat her like as just a you know something to make fun of it's her that has the power as much as possible and that's important to me because that's, that's my mom. She's not the one that gets made fun of. So why would I start? She's the one that has control. She's, she holds court. Yeah, Not me. She holds court.
0: Yeah, yeah. Well, we uh, end every show by asking our guests some of the same questions. So I'm going to ask you those. What's your favorite joke, comedy, routine, bit, something like that, that that you did not tell, that you're just sort of in awe of how good it is?
1: There's too many. But I'll tell you the one that I was the most jealous of. Amir Rahman from Australia, he's a Bangladeshi-Australian comic from Melbourne, wrote a joke about reverse racism that is so well-written, so funny, so exact. And I've written bits and pieces of ideas and stuff, but never comprehensive. And I remember me and Kamau Bell were, like, we listened to it and we talked about it. And we both had the same, like, how come we didn't write that? <laughs> and could we? And then there's the second question. Could we have written that? Mm. Like, you know what I mean? Like, are we even capable of writing that like what he wrote about if you ever have someone say reverse racism something's reverse racism send that to them because <laughs> it 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 so comprehensively just dis, like discusses the topic and has so many wonderful punchlines that i you know and he's a friend but he's the only comic that makes me feel like a sellout mm. he's it he's so honest and raw and and Gutsy, both in his delivery, in his form, and in his content. And that joke is, like, to me, one of the greatest jokes I've
0: ever heard. What's, like, the last movie or TV show you watched or book you read? Just the last pop culture thing you did, and what did you think of it? Oh, my God. Oh, it was—I saw that um,
1: Unabomber uh, miniseries that's Mm -hmm. uh, uh, on—am I allowed to give an opinion on it? Yeah. It was so good till the end. <laughs> oh my God! It was so the characters were well built. Yeah, the story was really good. You know, you're getting a sense of who this guy is, and then it basically ends in this like cheesy procedural kind of way. Like it yeah. ends like Law and Order, and I love Law and Order because I'm expecting Law and Order. When you invest eight hours into a single thing and it ends like Law and Order, you're gonna be pissed. Yeah, me and my brother binged on it, eight episodes in a row, whatever the whole series is. We watched the whole series in one sitting and we were both pissed. It was, it ended in the corniest, cliched, hackiest way and no way, in no way is that true. It could not have ended that hacky.
0: No way. (laughs) Uh, Who is the comic you've learned the most from that you've never met that can be alive or dead? Oh boy.
1: I I think it's a couple of people. I think it's Carlin and Bruce. Mm. Carlin in terms of how he's able to criticize and critique the world through its language. Because mm-hmm. he really believed that language was important and deliberate. He didn't make fun of those things just to be cute. He talked about it because this is how we view the world. Mm-hmm. When we talk about football, look at the violence that's embedded in it. Mm-hmm. Brilliant. Um, and that's very much shaped me. Like I have a whole bit on, about the phrase devil's advocate. Like to say that I had no influence from Carlin would be ridiculous. I mean, certainly the idea of critiquing language – um, Lenny Bruce, you know, less so, I mean, stylistically less so, but just in terms of he really put his butt out there, man. Like, he totally, like, he died for the art form. He died for the First Amendment. Like, when everyone talks about the First Amendment and fighting for the First Amendment, like please let's, you know, as a comic, let's please not forget Lenny Bruce. That's the person who really did it. The rest of you are whining on the internet mm. about, this person said this to me, and this cartoon character, and this Lenny Bruce died to be able to criticize whatever you wanted and do what you wanted. So, certainly, certainly him. And also Richard Pryor. Mm. I mean, looking back at Pryor's stuff now, you know, because I, you know, I was too young, you know, when he, well, I mean, he wasn't really doing much stand-up by the time I was of age, you know. Yeah. He was a movie star by then, and like a sunset strip and all the other stuff came before, but Pryor uh, showed me the versatility that um, a comic can have. Like he was a storyteller; he his improvisation was great. Um, he did characters. He was physical. He was political. He was social. He talked about sex. He was he was grotesque, but had great decency. He had all. He, it was his full self. He could set himself on fire and talk about it. He, he was exposed. Mm-hmm. One of the tracks that shook me the most and I think influenced me the most was on the Bicentennial album the last track of that record uh, he talks about a minstrel character that would represent the 200 years of uh, America being uh, being quote unquote free you know being a country and it, it is the, one of the most painful painful ends of any piece of art I've ever seen in my life
2: See, I'm just so thrilled to be here <laughs> <laughs> Over here in America, I'm so glad y'all took me out of die, homie. <laughs> I used to live to be 150, now i die as a high blood pressure by the time I'm 52. And <laughs> that thrills me to death.
1: It's like this minstrel, laughing through how great America is, laughing through. He was a, he's a slave, and, like, and then you separated from me and my family, and you did this, I never see my mother again. And he's laughing the whole time, just how oh, we're all celebrating.
2: 360 of us died on the way over here. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> that just thrilled me so. <laughs> I don't know, you white folks are just so good to us. <laughs> Got over here, another 20 of us died from disease. <laughs> ah, but you didn't have no doctors to take care of us. I'm so sorry you didn't. <laughs> Upset you all some, too, did it? <laughs> then they split us all up. <laughs> yes, sir, we. took my mom over that way, took my wife that way, took my kids over yonder. <laughs> I'm just so happy. <laughs> I don't know what to do. I don't know what to do if I don't get 200 more years of this. <laughs> Lord of mercy. Yes, sir, we. I don't know where my old mama is now. <laughs> You up yonder in that big white folks in the sky. <laughs> Y'all probably never forgot about it. <laughs> but I ain't going to never forget
1: it. End of show. And I'm never going to forget no clapping, no laughter. End of record. Hmm. Just cold. And I'm hearing this. I'm like, this is stand-up? You can do that? <laughs> yeah. you, can make, you can bring people to... All these different levels of emotion and you can end any way you want to end. I mean, I heard that and I'm like, I can do, you know, that was one of the, you know, Stuart, I talked about Stuart Lee giving me a lot of that, but in terms of emotional range, like hearing some of prior stuff, I'm like, I, I have more than just the one I can, I can take people on whatever journey I want to take them on. Yeah. And if anyone says what you're doing it wrong, well, I said prior did it. Hmm. So I have every right
0: to like play in that, in that realm. Whether for the company or the food itself, what's your favorite meal you've ever had?
1: Oh, my God. I think I'm going to go with – okay. This is the my favorite thing that my mom makes. Okay. She makes um, idli, which is like rice cakes, mm-hmm. um, South Indian. And she makes it with peanut chutney, which is her own recipe. It is incredibly delicious. I, I Peanut chutney is not a regular thing. It's not a thing. It's usually coconut chutney. But her peanut chutney is this magical thing. People often you put cheaper flour in there just to mass produce it, and she makes it the actual way so it's exactly the way it's supposed to taste, mm-hmm. delicious and fluffy. And I love it because my mom makes it because she knows how much I love it. it. It makes me feel like home. I know that she it takes a day to prepare. Mm-hmm. So you have to soak lentils from the day before. So I think for that, knowing that, like, somebody would put so much effort into this one meal that I love mm-hmm. and know that, like, Each time I eat it, it's precious because my mom made it, and I know that means I can't have this meal forever. makes it the best. Yeah, that's without a doubt my favorite meal.
0: Great, great. Well, Hari Kondabolu, the special is Warn Your Relatives on Netflix. Thank you for joining me. Thank you. The problem with I Think You're Interesting is that it's hosted and executive produced by Todd Vanderwerf, and in case you hadn't guessed, that's me. My producer is Bridget Armstrong. The executive producer of audio here at Vox Media is Nishant Kurwa. Our sound designer is Miles Yule. Our logo design is thanks to Victor Ware, Crystal Stevens, and Georgia Cowley. Our production manager is Alex Ulreich. Our production coordinator is Gary Clements. Our studio this week was the Vox Media Podcast Studio in New York City. And our recording engineer was William Broughton. You can rate, review, and subscribe to this show on Apple Podcasts or Stitcher or Spotify. And indeed, we ask that you do. It helps us get the word out about the show and helps us continue to get great guests. You can also email me at todd at vox.com. You can email the whole show at ityi.podcast, itye.podcast at vox.com. And you can tweet at me at tvoti that is to we're gonna be back next week with somebody else from the world of arts and entertainment media and culture and i'm just gonna spoil it it's bob balaban we're gonna have a good time with bob balaban uh he he was he was a lot of fun and he talked about his long illustrious career but until then that's why your favorite simpsons character should be ralph wiggum there's nothing problematic about ralph don't tell me all the things that are problematic about ralph i don't want to know